Engage quantum drive. Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 3, Mortality Paradox, which was written by Cherry Chiva Pravat Dumrong and directed by John Kassar. Before we get into our reviews this week, we have a couple plugs to go over that are show-related. First of all, we have had a YouTube page for a little while, but now... We have a custom URL, Ooh. and that is thanks to all of you wonderful people that have gone over there and subscribed. If you are not familiar with it yet, we release video versions of our trivia, we release our episode takeaway videos, and we've released the interviews that we did with the cast for season three at the press event. Go watch. You get to see like our beautiful faces, and then you also get to see the cast's beautiful faces. So it's a fun thing that we just started doing this season. And it'd be cool if you went over and, and you can say hi to us in the comments too, which sure can. I'm so excited reading the comments over there. Yeah, no, it's been great so far knowing what YouTube is often like and people have been yes. pretty great so far. So yeah. we really appreciate that. Y'all are great. Like the fandom for Orville is just one of the best. Absolutely. So. You can go over to youtube.com slash quantum drive and check out our page there. We do have some plans for other stuff coming up in the future, too. So get subscribed now so you can see all the things going forward. Don't miss anything. Also, we had a drop on the merch store just recently inspired by our latest episode of Quantum Drive. Katie and I were joking about the fate of Nurse Park, and it inspired me to come up with a Union Point athletic shirt because he's the fastest, Katie. It's not a joke, Rob. Like you can pretend it's a joke, but it's the truth and it's canon in the universe That's because right. nothing bad could happen to Nurse Park. Completely true. So you can go over to thegeekgeneration.com slash store and pick yourself up a Union Point athletic shirt if you'd like to. Also available over there are Quantum Drive shirts and a Quantum Drive mug that has our lovely characters and a nice star field behind it. So if you'd like any of that stuff, you can head on over there. Check it out. I've literally thought about Nurse Park every single day since the last episode. <laughs> and I wish I was joking, but I'm not. It's like an earworm, like a song that mm -hmm. just gets stuck in your head. I need closure. I need to know what happened. Yeah. We'll know one way or the other, I think, at some point. I can't say that for sure, but I'm hoping. Fingers crossed. But he's totally alive. Yeah, there's a flashback episode, probably, where they go back to Union Point and he's just running the track. For sure. And then they'll fast forward and they'll find him. So that's, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> We have no new reviews this week, but as a reminder, you can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star written review, and we will definitely read it on the show. We also have no emails, but we do have a comment from Twitter that we wanted to highlight really quick, and this is from Willie on Twitter, who says, I really, really like this podcast. The hosts have great chemistry together and speak intelligently and confidently about not only the writing and technical aspects of the show, but also deeper philosophical issues as well all while being entertaining. I've been looking for a good Orville podcast, and I think I just found one. So thank you so much for that, Willie. 
And I feel like we've gotten some really nice comments lately. And it just, it's nice to read those. And feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Like people are listening to this and enjoying it. And so, yeah, thank you, Willie. And thanks to everybody who's been sharing their kind thoughts our way. Yeah. Katie and I work really, really hard on the show. And we are super excited when we get any kind of feedback or comments whatsoever. So please keep those coming on in. And maybe you'll be featured on one of our episodes because I think, I mean, it's kind of neat. You might hear your name someday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, you can follow us over at Quantum Drive Pod if you'd like to leave your comments over there. You can also join the Discord at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord where there's a channel to talk about the Orville and the podcast. And if you'd like to access Mark's alternate one-sentence reviews and some other bonus content, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Before we get into the episode discussion, Katie has trivia. I sure do. To get started, Brandon Fayette, who is a visual effects supervisor for season three, helped redesign the Union shuttle for this season. So if you've watched this show from season two to season three, the shuttle looks vastly different. Mm -hmm. It's been quoted that the crew has called it a wooden shoe look for the old shuttle. That's funny. But now they've made the shuttlecraft sleeker. And I feel like in this specific episode, we really got a chance to see them up close and personal. Mm. The body looks a lot more angular Mm -hmm. and it just looks cooler. It looks more aerodynamic, if that makes any sense. Sleek is a really good way to put it. Mm -hmm. It just has cleaner lines and it reminds me vaguely of a krill vessel just because it's got some of those sharp points on it. But yeah, I think that you can definitely see the upgrade. Agreed. So one of the producers and editors on the show, Tom Costantino, has hidden his voice somewhere in this episode. So... If you find it, please comment and let us know that you found it. But apparently, lurking in this episode somewhere, you can hear Tom's voice. Also, the underlying theme of this episode has been compared to similar episodes from Star Trek The Next Generation in the two episodes called Where Silence Has Lease and Allegiance, both involved an alien species trying to learn more about their captives and presenting them with challenges to overcome. The aliens essentially experiment on the crew for information and knowledge, And in both the Orville and TNG, the aliens tried to justify their actions by saying no one was in any real danger and then not acknowledging that holding the crew captive and putting them through trials is problematic. Yeah. Hmm. All for knowledge, but it's a very interesting discussion. And so if you loved this episode, you can dive into these two episodes of Next Gen and explore that idea a little bit more. Yeah, I feel like we'll have some things to say about that for this episode. I agree with you on that. (laughs) During the shoot for this episode, and perhaps other episodes as well, the crew had to be mindful of shooting around Jessica Zor because she was pregnant during some of the filming and the baby bump was starting to show and become more noticeable. Yeah. So that's just always interesting. It reminds me of like sitcoms from the 90s where they would make them hold a box or something. And like you just notice like specific actors walking around with boxes in front of their stomachs or the couch was just right in the same spot. But I didn't even notice. So that was just something... That good on them. I didn't even have an inkling. Yeah, at this point, I feel like that's an art in and of itself. The ability Mm -hmm. to hide that from an audience. Although I have a feeling like at some point in the future, they're just going to digitally hide it. CGI has come a long way. Like sometimes I'll see actors doing interviews for stuff and they're like, oh, yeah, they had to like CGI my hand for the entire movie. Yeah. Because they cut their hand. They had a bandage on it or something. And I'm like, holy crap. I didn't know that we had the technology. But apparently they also have the budget for that. Yeah. That can't be cheap. Most of the filming of this episode concluded sometime before mid-March 2020, 
which was right around the big shutdown we had in the United States due to COVID-19. So some of the remaining scenes were not filmed until the end of 2021 because of the pandemic and also because of shooting around Jessica Zor being pregnant. So yeah, a couple things to work around for this episode. I think COVID was a big one, but there's some scenes in this where like the high school, so many people are in yeah. there. And just like, that's one of the first things I noticed about watching this episode is the amount of people in one small space. And I think the pandemic has made me more aware of those things. For sure. So I specifically wanted to look this up since I was like, wait, was this film during the pandemic? And uh, no, just right before the cutoff. Although when we talked to the producers, they did tell us that regardless of the pandemic, they wanted to make sure that this show didn't show signs of it being like restricted amounts of people on a set or anything like that. They didn't want it to look like a show that was filmed during the pandemic. So they did everything they could to keep it as safe as possible. And we end up getting a show that looks as it should without any sacrifices made for that. That is true. I didn't think about that. I will say that just triggered something in my brain in the last episode, Shadow Realms. I had that question of like, where is everybody on the ship? Mm -hmm. Maybe that was because of COVID. Possible. And since it's a horror episode, it kind of fit with the narrative. But yeah, I know I can speculate for for days about these things, but (laughs) I just noticed like the large amount of people. And I was like, wow, my brain has shifted to noticing that more just because of our world. Moving on to guest stars. The first one is Morgan Baston. She played the girl whose locker is blocked by Bordis and she shares a brief conversation with Ed. And you may have seen her in FX's American Crime Story anthology in season one, The People versus O.J. Simpson, where she played Khloe Kardashian. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, I have to share that. Just I think that's kind of a neat one. I actually watched that season of it. It was pretty interesting. I noticed that she was in this episode and then also Jessica Belkin, who plays the popular girl who's mean to Bordis, which I have problems with because mm-hmm. it's Bordis played a character named Ren with a vampiric streak in the hotel season of American Horror Story, mm. which you probably don't watch. I've not seen Story. either of those shows, no. I've seen like bits of American Horror Story and I've started seasons. I actually started the hotel season, but I never finished it. No. And last but not least, Elizabeth Gillies, who played the alien at the end known as Denal, has been in a lot of prior shows and movies and she's currently in the TV series Dynasty. But she was also in the show Victorious from Nickelodeon, which I believe is where Ariana Grande got her start as well. Oh, okay. So that was a big, I think it was past my time, but (laughs) Victorious is like a very popular Nickelodeon show. She also had a guest spot recently on Family Guy where she played a character called Alana in an episode entitled All About Alana. That's from this year. Okay. And she's also an accomplished singer, as well as all of her acting credits. I know she also recently did the voice for Catwoman in a DC animated movie called Catwoman Hunted. Oh, nice. Yeah. So she does a lot. Oh, yeah. But I don't think this is going to be the last we see of her. Something tells me. Something tells me. Yeah. Yeah, that's all the fun facts and guest stars from this episode. Okay. Tala has arrived back on the Orville early after spending a week visiting her parents. Before returning to duty, she tells Kelly that she picked up the residue of a Kalon quantum signature near the sector. We got some nice shots of Tala walking up the spiral staircase to the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I like getting to see spots of the ship that obviously took a lot of time for the set to be built for. And then they linger on it. Yeah. So you get to appreciate it. And just seeing people in like casual clothing as opposed to their uniforms is always nice every now and then. I thought she was going to the bridge, but then she goes to Kelly's. Mm. And I mean, obviously, I'm going to get ahead of myself because this is not the real Tala. Right. But she does a good job being Tala. 
even though she goes to Kelly, my first thought was like, oh, yeah, they're friends, of course. But usually on ships like this, if we're talking Trek, the XO is kind of the overseer of the crew and therefore needs to know when people are on board or off board or anything like that. That makes sense. I did think it was interesting because Tala talks about, see, I, I don't trust it because I'm like, is it Tala or is it Denal? I believe she's operating on the information she has about Tala, saying her dad's alcoholic mm. and going into some of Tala's backstory. And it makes me curious to learn more about her. And I mean, I kind of want to go back to Zalea and go on a vacation with her and see what her home is like. Yeah. Makes you wonder how long the aliens have been watching the crew to to get all this information. It's a little unnerving. Oh, yeah. It's a lot unnerving. <laughs> if you really think about it. She's been being watched for, for a hot minute. Yeah. On the bridge, Tala shares some homemade Zelayan chocolates with the crew. Bordis, however, does not indulge, as he's watching his diet before Clyden and he go on shore leave. Isaac then reports that he's detecting electromagnetic emissions from Neuron 1 that suggest a dense population, which is strange as the planet should be a barren rock. I love seeing Zelayan chocolates <laughs> just because well, they're like it's dense. It's like a dense chocolate. And I would like one, please. Yes, same. And it looks kind of like I tried to examine it a little bit. They never really show one up close. Yeah, but it looks like there's some sort of a mass or a ball in the center. And then like little nubs around the outside. I love that you did a deep dive <laughs> into the chocolate <laughs> that you were like pausing the screen and you're I like, was. enhance, enhance. <laughs> <laughs> they sold it in a way, though, where I was like, I would like some of that. And if they ever sell Zelayan chocolates, I will order them immediately and indulge myself. Mm. Yeah. I also like that Portis <laughs> is going on a diet. But, you know, I feel like he should have had a Zelayan chocolate. I also like the personal touch that Tala's mom made it. Yeah. So it's like she brought back a treat from home. Like my mom made this. And I would assume means that she's supportive of her career and giving a little bit of home for her to share with the crew is pretty cool. I love the idea, except for the fact that we know she didn't actually make them at all because it's not actually oh, Tala. No. <laughs> this is what's tough about this episode is because <laughs> you're like, it's Tala. So then whose chocolates are they? Yeah. Did she just go to the synthesizer and she's like, give me some Zelayan chocolates and then has the audacity to walk around the bridge and be like, my mom made these. Well, from what we know about this alien, I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but it's hard to talk about the episode without really alluding to that stuff. From what we know about this person is they just conjured them up out of nowhere. Oh, that's true. Because they can just like, hey, you want some tea? Yeah. They don't need a synthesizer like us normal folks. Nope. Oh. I do still think it's funny that Portis is very influenced by Gordon. <laughs> yeah, Gordon is an influencer on the Orville. Specifically to Bordas. Yeah, like if Gordon had an Instagram, Bordas would be like, oh gosh, I got to get those chips that Gordon's holding. Yep. So it's not a bad thing. It's not. He's not doing any like major harm. It's just like, you should probably get your summer body and grow a mustache and... <laughs> Even, and I'm getting ahead again, in the later in the episode, he influences Bordas to say something to the popular girl as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's going to go anywhere because I'm noticing it more. And like when I watched this episode, I was like, wow, this does call back to the, the mustache mm -hmm. and then all these other things from the past. And I don't know. It just felt like maybe that's just the way their relationship is. But I wonder if there's going to be an episode where Bordas just kind of stands up to Gordon at some point. <laughs> like I'm not putting up with this anymore. I just also felt I really want a Bordis episode soon, and I'm hoping there'll be one on the horizon. Same. 
there's been Bordis, but we haven't really seen Clyden besides later in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I really want to know what's going on with Topa, Clyden, and Bordis. I want to know what's happening in their lives. The Orville arrives at the formerly barren planet, where scanners show the evidence of multiple advanced cities and a population of 8.5 billion. They attempt to hail the planet, but receive no answer, despite the scanners showing that they have the capability to respond. Ed orders an away team comprised of himself, Kelly, Gordon, Tala, and Bordis to take a shuttle to investigate. So did you see that people were standing in the shuttle? I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm starting to notice more about it, too, because, like, it's not enough to notice that they're just standing now, but to, like, see Tala's hands on the back of Gordon's seat and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There was later in the episode, I don't know if you made a note about this, but when Dr. Finn's away team goes down, the two red shirts with them sit in the seats. Mm. They did not stand. So maybe if you're a senior officer, you're like, oh, I just got to stretch these legs. I am too important to sit in these back seats. (laughs) It's like a delineation. Like there's a line where it's like, you can't sit in this if you're above a certain rank. (laughs) Must be this rank to stand. (laughs) Must be this rank to stand. I'm starting to think that there is a protocol that went around at some point Mm. that has made this a thing. We know they are lacking certain protocols and might even have some protocols that don't necessarily uh, make any sense, but... (laughs) Protocols nonetheless. This is true. But that's kind of like a real job. Like every job I've worked has protocols for stuff you don't need and then no protocols for things you do need. That are super common and totally (sighs) should be addressed, yeah. I noticed in this scene too that uh, Burke hops into the captain's chair, even though she's an ensign. And Ed tells her to. I didn't even notice that. Oh, really? So when they're heading out, Ed's like, Lamar, report to the con and just goes, Charlie. And she hops in the captain's chair because they can't have nobody operating as the captain, even if it's just the time between Lamar coming up from engineering to get to the bridge. Someone's got to be there. At first, you might go, this is odd having an ensign in the captain's chair. But again, kind of hearkening back to Trek, that's how they always operated too. So it's not that strange. It seems that despite rank, bridge officers take command precedence over any other people. So the fact that Charlie is a bridge officer puts her into that seat until someone who's of higher order gets into that situation. So Isaac was still on the bridge, right? Yes, But Isaac's not technically part of the union. That's right. Because I was also thinking back to people who might outrank Ensign Charlie Burke. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and I know know they wouldn't put him in the caption chair anyway because of the Kalon issue. Right. I think regardless of how much they're like, it's fine. It's Isaac. You can't put him in charge of the ship. I guess it would be Charlie. That's kind of like putting Wesley in charge of the Enterprise. A little bit when he was an Ensign, at least. Yeah. It took them all to get there, but... Just interesting to think about. Yeah, but (laughs) what if in the few minutes that Charlie was in the captain's chair, she was like, oh, by the way, Isaac, you're off. You're you're done. You're out of the ship. (laughs) (laughs) Would she have the authority? I feel like... Not necessarily, but it's just funny to me. As an acting captain, yeah. You're relieved of duty. Exactly. She brought some sass about that in this episode. Oh, for sure. As the shuttle arrives at the coordinates that they detected to be a city, the away team is surprised to see only a forest, which also shouldn't be there. The comm scanners are now detecting what they're seeing, and Lamar verifies that the ship scanners are detecting only forest, no cities. Fortis picks up several hundred humanoid lifeforms, so they make their way in that direction and are shocked to find a 21st century-looking high school. 
This is where we got a really good look at the new shuttles that you talked about earlier. And like we said, they look absolutely fantastic. I was also surprised here by the decision for them to move onward with their weapons out. At the high school? Yeah, like before they even got to the high school, as soon as they detected the life forms ahead, Tala's like, weapons out, Captain? And he's like, yeah. And they get the weapons out. So despite things being weird that they're encountering so far, there's no evidence of danger yet, which is way more cautious than we have seen them act in the past. Maybe they got burned in Shadow Realms and they're like, you know, we're not going to be caught with our mask off again. So it's certainly possible. I think maybe it's because Lamar's like, there's no cities and now there's humanoids. So maybe it's kind of like something fishy's going on. Let's get our weapons out. But maybe they just had it set to a lower setting so they wouldn't do any real damage. Oh, I'm sure. But it kind of starts the episode off with like, what's going on? Yeah. Which is fun. It's kind of like, wait, there's a high school in the middle of the forest on a desert planet, essentially. So it creates a really interesting beginning to this episode where, I mean, you don't know what's about to happen. It almost felt like a horror episode to me. In certain ways, absolutely. Yeah, which was kind of weird to see right after the episode we just got. Yeah, it has a vibe of like, ooh, this is a little bit, maybe more of like a thriller. Mm. I think that's a good way to describe it. Mercer contacts Lamar, who's detecting no life forms other than the landing party. They enter Oakwood High School, and Bordis is able to detect others. Mercer attempts to confirm this with Lamar, but he is now unable to contact the ship. The door of the school then closes, and neither Tala's strength nor Kelly's blaster is giving them a way out. The bell rings, and the hallways fill with students, which Tala's scanner detects as humans. They decide to explore in two teams, with Ed and Kelly as one and the remaining three as the other. Never split the party. (laughs) Have they learned nothing? (laughs) I didn't understand why they didn't try to break the glass with like an arm before they got the blaster out. Mm. Just like the blaster comes out and it's like shooting the door. Let's just try shooting the glass because you would think like you could just elbow a pane in the glass and seeing if you could get that open. Maybe they were trying to avoid injury by broken glass. True. I guess that is like maybe it just seems like a blaster is like a high, you know, maybe you could find a broom or something to hit it with. They did ramp it up real quick. Yeah. The door closing was one of the first things that I was like, "Ooh, is this going to be a spooky thing? Mm -hmm. Just because it locks them in. And I enjoyed that there was some mystery and suspense built into this because they're in a high school. You don't know where they're going to go with it. And uh, the blaster seemed pretty excessive. But I think if you're like trapped in an alien world where there's not supposed to be a high school, maybe you just start blasters out. Maybe. I did like the callback of Ed being like, Tala, the door. Yeah. Sorry, my brain went back to, I think, didn't he say it again in this episode too? There might have been another part where she might have just gone for the door herself. Yeah, it was on the airplane when they got in the pilot. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. But he may have said it too for this. Oh, he did. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is the first time, even though, again, not actual Zelayan, this is the first time that Ed asks Zelayan to open a door and they can't do it. That is true. Ooh. I'm just thinking back to all the stuff with Alara because she had to open quite a few doors. Yeah. And he doesn't say, can you open this jar of pickles for me? So yeah, yeah. They left that when Alara left, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was an Alara special line. So <laughs> Lamar and Isaac are continuing to scan the planet. While they can see the shuttle, the landing party appears to be missing. John wants to send down a search party and Isaac suggests against it. But Charlie interjects to back up John. Lamar orders Isaac to take a shuttle to the surface with Dr. Finn in a security detail. So clearly. Charlie hasn't eased up on Isaac at all yet. 
she is ready to assume the worst of them right away. She's already bringing up the protocol again. Like, we don't know what sleeper program this guy's got. She's really fixated on that sleeper program. Do you think there's going to be a payoff for that at some point? I don't think so. I am really hoping that Isaac is clear of all that stuff. Yeah. I feel like he disconnected himself. And I think he did make some sort of note to that at the end of last season, that he is disconnected from the rest of that quote-unquote hive mind that the Kalon have. And it's why he feels alone. But yeah, I, I think he's just out of the woods of that stuff and operating completely freely. I don't think Charlie's going to change anytime soon because we three episodes in, she's still very like in front of Isaac discrediting him. Mm -hmm. And just honestly, can you imagine saying that to somebody else? Just like, you're going to trust this guy? Like, come on. Charlie's pretty harsh and vocal about her dislike of the Kalon, which you can understand because of her her history. But I do wonder if there will be a point that she has a not a come to Jesus moment, but like a come to the Kalon moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just to, just to be like, all right, I can kind of see Isaac's not a bad guy. It leaves that stuff in the back of my my mind where I'm like, wait, is something's gonna happen with this? Yeah. I also wonder if she felt as free to interject as she did because John's in the chair right now and Ed is not. Ed has already made his point with her, like, you cannot be like this. I don't want to say it's insubordination. It's borderline. I know, like, the crew of the Orville is very much collaborative mm -hmm. in how they deal with things. Just because she's a new crew member, she seems like she's very vocal for being such a new member of the crew. And especially about something that is such a touchy topic. So that is a good point. Maybe it is because John was in the chair and not Ed. But I've also noticed this season that like Ed has assumed more of an authoritative kind of role. For sure. Yep. And it seems very much like, I don't know if this is a weird thing to say, but that he's more of in like a fatherly position for everybody. Just the way that everyone's addressing him and being more respectful of him and his space. Yeah, I can see that. It felt, even though he was always in charge and people always respected him, he felt like their buddy before. Yeah. And now he feels like their boss. Because there's a point in this episode where Gordon turns to Ed and says, Captain. Mm -hmm. And I just so jarringly was like, he just called him Captain. Yeah. And I'm sure that's not the first time Gordon's done that. But it felt more distant than buddies who went to Union Point together. I can see that. So I do feel like Ed has definitely asserted himself in a different way. And maybe Charlie's pushing those boundaries when Ed's not around. Maybe. I could see that. Bordis, Tala, and Gordon interrupt a history lesson in progress. Tala is unable to break a window, and the teacher kicks them out of the class. As Gordon is scanning in the hallway, a group of bullies push him into the bathroom and tell him that Randall wants his money. As Gordon gets beaten up and his head jammed into a toilet, Bordis and Tala are unable to open the bathroom door. The bullies leave, allowing Bordis and Tala to enter. This scene, my God, it was not like a... Oh, he's getting pushed around the bathroom. Like, he was getting the crap beat out of him. I was waiting for him to swing back, and he doesn't at all. He offers very little resistance. I mean, they're technically children. So maybe it's like that weird gray area. It's like, do you fight back at the children who are, like, shoving your head in a toilet? In that scenario, I feel like you might need to. Yeah, I mean, you're in danger. They're, like, punching you. They're kicking you when you're down. At a certain point... It becomes, they're not children. It becomes, these people are causing some serious physical harm to me and I have to defend myself. Well, you're like, who's Randall? Why does he want money? And that he's got these lackeys that pull Gordon into the bathroom. And 
the door locks so they can't get in. And what's tough about this scene is that it's like a very brutal beating. They're, like you said, kicking him when he's down there, shoving his face into a toilet under a water. It's not like a, hey, give us your money, kid. They're kicking the crap out of him. And throughout the rest of this episode, you just see these injuries on his face. It's not just, oh, he got someone just smacked him across the face, like actual deep cuts and bruising and swelling. Yeah, it's not like a shakedown. Mm -mm. Yeah, that scene, I was like this point in the episode, I'm like, I have no idea what's happening, where we headed from here. But the fact that Gordon is getting the crap kicked out of him in a high school of all places. Yeah, at this point, I was convinced that Randall, quote unquote, was the big bad of the episode and the key to everything. Yeah. Boy, were we mistaken. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The landing party comes together and Gordon tells Ed and Kelly about the incident. His injuries suggest that whatever is going on here, they can definitely be hurt. They then make their way to the cafeteria to try and get some answers and learn that students pay Randall so he won't beat them up. I loved Bordis's encounter with the Mean Girls. I know we don't want them speaking badly to Bordis, but it's just funny to think about when you take the high school social hierarchy out of the equation. Mm-hmm. That's a more realistic depiction of how that conversation would go. Bordis is not intimidated by them because there is no social hierarchy for him to consider. So he's just matter of fact, like, why? Why can't I sit here? You don't have the right to tell me I can't. I just liked his, I am prepared to take them by force. <laughs> yeah, so good. It just makes me so excited to have more Bordis. I just love Bordis, but... This might be controversial, but when they walk away from that table, Gordon leans into Bordis and whispers something mm-hmm. and then says, hey, you have a five head. <laughs> and like, I get it, but I'm also just like kind of sad because telling young impressionable girls who are probably very insecure, which is why she's acting that mm-hmm. way, that she's got a five head could do some damage. Again, this is like a simulation. It's not a real scenario, right. but... Perhaps that's just little Katie thinking about if someone had said that to me, but I would not be at a table telling Bordis he couldn't sit there. Yeah. And then Bordis means nothing mean by it because he doesn't even know what it means. Gordon does, though. Gordon does. But Gordon also just had his butt beat up in the bathroom. And I don't think he's thinking about like what's nice for people right now. He's lashing out. I think so. Yeah. Just from my perspective, I don't like when people make fun of other people's looks, even if they're a bad person. No, I agree. I agree. So did enjoy like the whole cafeteria scene just in general with the kids who did let them sit down. And Gordon's like, what happens if we don't pay? All he says, and I thought the kid who played this character did a really good job of delivering like you should pay Randall. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. So I feel like they encapsulated a high school experience pretty well, especially in our generation Mm -hmm. or time. I don't know. Is it century? Century, yeah. (laughs) In our century? (laughs) With school over for the day, the team is finally able to exit the building, but there's still no sign of the shuttle and no contact with the Orville. They decide to head to the bleachers to find Randall, only to find that he's a massive axe-wielding ogre-like monster. As their blasters are having minimal effect, Randall scoops up Gordon. A close-up on Gordon's eyes shows them go completely white. Tala rips a metal bleacher from the field and hurls it into one of Randall's eyes, disorienting the ogre long enough for the team to rush back into the school. Not expecting this at all. No, no, I was not expecting to see a giant ogre. I was kind of into the whole high school aspect of this episode, so I was like, who's Randall? Let's go find out who Randall is. And I was like, oh, he's a monster thing. 
And then when he gets picked up, his eyes turn white. I'm like, is this a horror episode? Just because it felt very scary. It's kind yeah. of a scary scenario. But this is also where we see Tala just like hurl that bleacher seat into the ogre. Yeah, I said it last episode and I'll say it again. I am loving Tala this season and the fact that they're letting her just use all this lay and strength. And I know, again, fake Tala, but it's still Zelayan action. Yeah, Tala's just so confident in herself. And I know like it's the essence of Tala, mm-hmm. but she just takes action, which I think I really appreciate. She's just like, I'm going to do what I need to do in this scenario. And it's not a lot of like, oh, how do I do this kind of thing? It's very much like I'm going to rip this bleacher off and huck it at this ogre. And it was successful. So it was a good plan of attack. Heck yeah. However, once they pass through the door of the school, they find themselves on an airplane where the flight attendant asks them to take their seats. Gordon tells them that something weird happened while the ogre was holding him. It was as if his brain froze. The search party touches down on the planet only to find it looking the way it always has, a barren desert with no life forms. The first shuttle is still at its original landing coordinates, but no one is there. The mystery continues, especially when we know that the original landing party is inside whatever this thing is and other people don't have access to it. Where is it, though? Like, if Claire is there mm-hmm. and she deviated from that landing, it's just interesting, like, where technically are they? Because they were in that forest when they landed. So my theory that's touched upon a little bit by Denal at the end is she says something to the extent of creating mini universes or like a pocket universe. So pocket universes can be parallel to existing universes. So they're in the same space, but not in the same dimension. I guess that makes sense. Because I was sitting there and I'm like, so if, if Claire were to deviate and go search for them, she, she would still probably just, yeah, she wouldn't have found it. Yeah. So I was just sitting there, my brain's going a million miles a minute trying to figure out like, where are they? It's also why they can't be detected. Yeah. So it's like they were picked up and put in this other universe. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like is that the whole door transformation from like, we're at the school, now we're in an airplane. That was cool, yeah. I did a tabletop show where that happened, where people went from one place to another And I just love, I haven't seen any applications of this in a long time in a show. So it was kind of cool to be like, oh my God, that means they're (laughs) going to be going to different things throughout this. So I was really on board about seeing what at this point is when I realized each of them are getting a story. Kind of, I think. I was like, Gordon's eyes flickered. So then I'm like, they're going into an airplane. Mm -hmm. My brain was like, I think there's going to be a different scenario for each of them. And yes, the airplane one was interesting because that was Ed's. Yeah. Well, that was a little weird to me. So my thought, the original theory I had before I knew the way the episode was going to go is that the eyes getting white was actually their brains being read to create the next scenario. So when they went on the plane, I was like, oh, this is Gordon's based on his pilot experience. But that doesn't account for what the high school was. Yeah. The way that my brain worked through it was that high school was the Gordon one. Which makes sense to me as Gordon's character is just like wanting to fit in maybe Mm -hmm. and not be targeted. And then I could kind of see Ed's being the airplane. Just he's very like old timey in -hmm. the sense that he appreciates older culture from like our century. Okay. Because he always references it and he has Kermit on his desk. And so maybe one of his like fear scenarios is an airplane crashing or a crashing of some sort of... I had a hard time reconciling some of the fantasies, quote unquote, but I could get metaphors from them and pull out like what that could mean for each of them. It was interesting because Gordon had to be the hero in this one, though. True. 
That and Kelly doesn't really get one if we're assuming Zelaya is Tala's and the morgue is Bordis's. If I want to dive deep, just like she was being pulled into the deep, oh, um, <laughs> is that she's afraid of dying alone? Maybe. Although Tala was there with her. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of it is you kind of have to draw on like allegories and metaphors. Like, I mean, yeah, Tala was there, but that's if I'm digging deep for that. Right, right. The airplane, meanwhile, is experiencing turbulence. Gordon explains that every time they hit a smooth patch, they either gain or lose altitude, seemingly to hit the rough stuff on purpose. As the turbulence increases, they make their way to the cockpit to find that no one's steering the plane. Gordon takes the pilot seat and guides the plane down, making a rough landing. Just before it hits the ground, Ed's eyes turn white. Once the plane stops, they exit and find themselves somewhere else. I have a huge fear of flying, and this is horrifying. <laughs> the turbulence and stuff that they hit. But I mean, I guess I'm like, this is such a unique scenario. This is not true to life. Oh, yeah. No, this is like purposely steering into yeah. everything bad. Would Gordon know that just because of what he studied? Maybe. Probably, I guess. There's a point where they have to land this plane, and Ed asks, Gordon, can you fly this thing? And he's like, we're about to find out. He does a pretty good job. Yeah. But I guess in those scenarios, maybe just piloting in the future is just very, it calls back to what it was like during our time that you can just figure it out on the fly, literally. I imagine if you're training to be a pilot, you have to learn the very basics of aviation before, even though a lot of it's not necessarily going to apply to space travel, it's still being a pilot is being a pilot and navigating and all that stuff. I just like to picture that in the future, they have Windows Flight Simulator <laughs> that everybody has to do. And so like they're like, all right, to pass this class, you got to do Windows Flight Simulator. <laughs> Land that plane. And then they also have it for like new space shuttles, but you got to do the old timey. Fly a 747. Let's see how it, you do. It's Windows Flight Sim Environmental Simulator Edition. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so horrifying. Like if you're learning to fly in like an actual simulation... And if you crashed, no, you don't get over that, even if it's fake. I bet you that's what it is, though. Oh, my God. You're probably right. I'm just sitting here like they get up like computer <laughs> screens and set them up for them in the 500 years in the future. In this new place, Ed tells Gordon that he experienced the same brain freeze sensation. As they turn a corner, it's revealed that they're in a Mocklin morgue. Bordas says that the pods are elevated for nine days to honor the dead. Tala presses a blinking light on the wall which opens up the pods, revealing the bodies inside. As Bordas approaches one, it wakes up and starts choking him. Bordas's eyes then go white, and the body returns to its original state. A door opens up, allowing them to progress forward. I wish they had lingered in this area more. Yeah, my only comment here was that this whole situation was significantly shorter than the ones we've seen up to this point. Especially, like, the set that they must have had to build for this, and just... Getting to see some of like Mocklin heritage and how they handle the dead and stuff was very interesting. You want to see everything about every alien culture. <laughs> I do. I want to know what the sunstones are like. I want to know about the morgues on Mocklis. So I thought it was neat to get some background. On oh, totally. Yeah. The lore that we're getting this season so far is exciting. And for this specific scene, I wish it was a little longer because it did go quickly. And I feel like I wanted more Mocklin Morgue, mm -hmm. which is kind of, I love horror stuff. So I was like, this is primo scary times. 
And I appreciated everything that they did in this and like the set building. This whole season is above and beyond yeah. for like a TV show. So I I wanted more time in it because I could tell a lot of time and effort went into it. And I liked the atmosphere that it was building. Mm-hmm. Something that I didn't notice on first watch through, but picked up on a second time. There's that button in the morgue that's just kind of blinking. Mm-hmm. Who's the one that pushes it? <gasps> Denal. Yeah. It's Tala, it's but Tala, it's Denal. But it's Denal. At first I was like, wait, why is Chief of Security pushing Sus. this blinking button on the wall? And then knowing now that it's Denal, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. She's going to keep mm-hmm. things moving forward. I didn't even think about that. It doesn't make sense like for a security officer to be like, ooh, a flashing light in a scary place that we've had like people who are getting hurt. Right. And we almost died in a plane crash. I'm going to push this button. Yeah. So maybe that's why that part was so fast as she was trying to move them to the next stage. Maybe. With no leads, Lamar orders the search party to return to the ship. The original team now finds themselves descending a long staircase to another door, which leads them to a lake on Zalea. They see a repeating light pattern from the other side. So Kelly, Tala, and Gordon decide to take a raft they find over to it. As they're crossing, the light has stopped and a creature from below the water grabs Kelly and pulls her far under. Tala swims down to help her, and Kelly's eyes turn white. Tala pulls Kelly from the creature's grasp, and they swim to the surface. Back on land, Tala and Kelly report that they both felt the same sensation. When that happened, I was like, "Oh, Tala got kind of ripped off. And then I realized now it was because Denal was Tala. That was something I wrote down originally, too. I was like, I don't get why Tala said she felt it, but, you know, that seems like a big thing in this episode. And they showed Kelly, but they didn't show Tala. And I'm like, oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense now. Yeah. This whole thing, I was like, they're going to get on this boat and do this after everything that's happened. I know they split the party again, Mm -hmm. but they get on the boat. And then I saw the underwater thing, which scares crap out of me because I don't like deep water and ominous creatures underneath. So I was automatically like, oh, that's scary. They're in a little raft and something's going to happen with this. It's clearly a trap. This whole sequence was very pretty. Because you see, like, the Zelayan coast mm-hmm. or whatever, or a lake. And the underwater stuff was really cool to me, just because they must have had to film on a tank to get some of these shots, mm. I would assume. And the creature underwater was interesting because it's, like, a Zelayan monster. Just because I, it's, like, still some of that background that we're getting on the planets and seeing more of these worlds. And it looked like a stingray jellyfish monster hybrid kind of deal. Granted, we don't even know if it's an actual thing. The only one who would mm-hmm. know out of them is Tala. And True. she's not going to be like, oh, by the way, this isn't accurate to my planet. Also, I'm not swimming in any alien lakes because if that large of a creature is just in a lake, that's a no-go for me. Yeah, it's not necessary as a land creature because Randall is uh, <laughs> a oh, little out of just, place too. It could be just something like, hey, I saw this on one planet. I like it in this scenario. Yeah. Let's put it in this lake. Oh, the custom made universes. Right, right. Yeah, who knows? It could just be like taking this from that thing and this from that thing and mash them together. A door forms on the beach as if to urge the team onward, but Ed's had enough and refuses to go to it. As they walk away from the door, Bordis detects a power signature in a nearby cave. They enter and find what appears to be a holographic generator. After disabling the shield around it, Ed fires at it and destroys it. The holographic environment they were in disappears, and Mercer is able to contact the Orville. Before returning, they gather the pieces of the generator for analysis. I don't know about you, but at this point in the story, even on the first watch, 
I was not buying that the generator was the complete answer here. I bought it. Yeah. I was very much like, oh, they found a generator. Oh, okay. I was fully thinking this was all happening until what happens a little bit later with the Kalon. Oh, okay. I was freaking out a little bit. I was like, (laughs) are they all going to die? And I was like, they can't do that. And, you know, everything's fine. But yeah, I didn't pick up on it being a problem at all. So I thought the generator was legit tech. Like I thought this was a real thing and they did escape the holographic environment or whatever. But at the same time, Sci-fi loves doing that multiple fake realities on top of one another thing. We've seen it happen so many times in so many different things. So I wasn't 100% certain that that's what was happening here, but I did consider it. I don't want to come out and just be like, oh, I totally knew from the beginning. It wasn't like I 100% knew, but it was a consideration. I was like, that generator doesn't feel like the end of the story. It was kind of weird that they found it so quickly. And then my my brain was like, shouldn't there be more of those? Because yes, it's powerful, but they were in some intense environments. And I think I just trusted the process. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's fine. And when they contacted John, I was like, oh, this must be a real thing. So that's when I trusted, I think, in it more when I'm like, oh, they're going back to the ship. It's fine. Like, And then they're back on the Orville. Yeah. On the second watch, there was a line from Gordon that made me think, oh, I should have noticed that because he says... We're back on the real planet. Like he specifically said real. And I was like, oh, he says real. That's like a suggestion to the audience that this is the real reality. Yeah, it worked on me. I was fully (laughs) sold. So (laughs) back aboard the Orville, Dr. Finn shares the findings of her brain scans. The results are synonymous with having gone through a major hallucination. She goes on to theorize that the device combined neurogenic and holographic elements to generate environments on the scale that they encountered. In the lab, John and Isaac shared their analysis of the fragments, which suggests that it was created by the Kalon. Grayson connects this to the residual quantum trail that Tala detected earlier. Yeah, still sold at this point because I'm like, look, they're seeing Dr. Finn, there's brain scans. And then they're like, it was a little suspicious about the analysis when I'm like, oh, it's Kalon generated. And things in my brain started bouncing back and forth. And I'm like, wow, they're really like getting into the Kalon stuff and dropping like little Kalon bits, Mm. I feel like, here and there. So I was a little suspicious that it was Kalon in origin. But when Ed explained, oh, it's probably for this reason, I was like, that's a good enough reason for me. (laughs) And I think the Dr. Finn doing the brain scans to me was like, yep, they're on the Orville. This is the reality. Mm. They're real one. So it's also at this point, though, where I'm like, there's a lot of episode left. Oh, see, I didn't even check the time. (laughs) So I don't know. Yeah. So there's a point where I'm like, well, they're back on the Orville. It seems kind of odd that there's still quite a bit of time left for us to to resolve. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll just see where it goes. Just because I pay attention to the time for some reason. And the whole sequence of the analysis and it being Kalon in origin And then being told like, yeah, I guess the Kalon just want to try to convince us of a fake reality. And that's a way they can win this war. Mm. I was like, damn, they're more advanced than I thought they would be. Yeah, I was still on the fence between is this real or is this not real? And the part of me that was saying this is real was terrified that the Kalon have access to this kind of technology now. And like, what is that going to mean moving forward? Yeah, I think it opens up a broader conversation about what the Kalon do. But also, if you think back to identity, they literally will do anything oh, yeah. to get what they want. And so they justify anything. So this seems plausible that they would put down this generator to mess with the brains of humans. They don't care. Totally. Yeah. So it tracks like it just was 
intriguing that it was Kalon and Origin. Yeah. And I, I think I got a little sus, a little sus with that. And then I just was like, yeah, I guess I agree with that. So yeah, with this much episode left, you kind of wonder what's coming next. Mercer and Grayson contact Admiral Halsey to report everything they found. Halsey says that they're sending a convoy to the Orville's location to retrieve the device fragments. As the convoy arrives, Isaac tells Ed that despite what their scans show, the approaching ship are Kalon vessels, not Union ships. As they go to red alert, the Kalon spheres revert to their true form and attack. Charlie again continuing to not trust Isaac, but this is the first example. And again, I know this isn't real reality, but this is the first example that we've seen that proves Ed's decision could have merit to keep Isaac around. There are things that Isaac can see that they can't Mm -hmm. even if, again, we're not still in reality. That is a situation that could come up, something along those lines. And I think that justifies Ed a little bit. This is a part in the episode where once we figure out what's happening later on, I have some thoughts on. Mm. Were they getting the mortality, I don't know what you would call it, hit from everybody on like the ship, but it is just them. It's just the landing party, yeah. The landing party, but I'm like, this is such an intense scenario to put them in. And I, at this point, I'm like, this is them. And now the Kalon are here. It's a whole big thing. And like they're the point where they're blocking themselves from dying mm-hmm. or getting and preparing for impact, essentially. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, I don't, I think the show did a good job about confusing me <laughs> and trying to sell me on like, this is them. This is the real thing that's mm-hmm. happening, even though it's not. Just a lot of traumatic events occurred in this short amount of time to these four people. Oh, yeah. Which is why they're so angry about it afterwards. Oh, my God. VFX wise, I love the effect of the uh, Kalon spheres shifting form. It's super fast, but it's so effective. And the sound design is just great. I love the noise it makes when they shift too. One of the things about the Kalon that I really like in this series is that I get excited about when the Kalon show up. Hmm. So there's a lot of like enemies you meet in these sci-fi shows and different, say from Star Trek, like the Romulans. Mm -hmm. They remind me of kind of like what the Krill are. But then there's also the Borg, Mm -hmm. which are my all-time favorite Star Trek villain. It's iffy because there's some gray area there. But I get excited about the Kalon like I get excited about the Borg. So I'm always like, yeah, there's Kalon shoots. (laughs) And so I just get like so invested. And that whole sequence was very like intense, high stakes. And it looked really good. There's like the CGI and the SFX have been really good this season. And the sequences with Kalon attacks... And the Orville maneuvering and fighting back. And it's just, it's very effective. Yeah, no, the sequence was awesome. I loved everything about it. Stressed me out. Yeah. And it was starting (laughs) to push me in the direction of this is real. This is happening until they started taking too much damage. But then we get the next scene, which shatters everything. (laughs) Yeah, I was stressed out during this scene. I feel like this season and the way that they've built up New Horizons, I'm like, they could fully blow up the Orville. (laughs) Like, there's a chance that there is going to be some major things that happen this season Mm -hmm. because they've already gone so hard already. True. I'm just waiting for anything. And when this was happening, I'm like, maybe what will happen is they'll crash into this and then part of the Orville will break off and float off into space. And like, like I just, I, (laughs) I honestly, they could... I'll believe anything that they put in front of me at this point. So yeah, this sequence was so stressful and I was very anxious about what was about to happen to all of them. Because mm. at this point, they're on the Orville and I had no idea that this was a fake scenario. Until, 
An officer turns and says that they're receiving a message from Lieutenant Kiali. We then see the bridge at normal status with John still in the captain's seat. Tala says that she's been at the rendezvous point for three hours. Surprised, John tells her that the Orville picked her up hours ago and she went down to the planet with the landing party, which is impossible because Tala responds that she left Zalea and went right to where she is now. She was just chilling there for three hours. That's more patience. I mean, I would have hailed them much sooner. I think she said it was a two-day trip anyway to get there. (sighs) This is what my brain does. I'm like, she's been there for three hours and it's a trip to get there. Where is the bathroom? Where does she sleep? I want to know these things. I assume all those accommodations are on the shuttle. Yeah, but I want to see them. (laughs) We got to go see some union bathrooms. I played the Orville fan game and I'm like checking out the bathroom situation because I'm so curious what it's like to live on a spaceship. Every shuttle also has a piss corner. (laughs) I hope that it's like a legit piss corner, though. This is what my brain does, though. I'm like, oh, she's been there for three hours. What's she going to do when she has to use the bathroom? So I want to see the bunks. I want to see the bathroom. I want to see how it works. That stuff's important to me. I don't know why. I think it's just this like illusion of living in space. What does that actually mean? Yeah. I don't disagree with you. It's a detail that probably many people do not care about. <laughs> but as someone who wanted to live on the Enterprise for many years, I feel like that's just fun things that my brain just eats up. Yeah. I also, I really like the transition to just that officer turning around because your brain doesn't register until you see John and the rest of the bridge that this is a bridge that is not at red alert. Yeah. Because it just looks like someone's turning around at that station and we just cut right to it. It's such a nice seamless cut that the shock and the twist is a great reveal. Man, it was confusing when that happened, which is the point mm-hmm. where you're like, wait, wait, I'm disoriented. Like what's happening? But it's a sense of ease too, where you're like, oh, they're not actually back. It's just kind of demented. <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly, it's a bit demented. Back in the simulation, the Kalons are overwhelming the Orville. Quantum drive is down, deflectors are gone, and Mercer gives the order to abandon ship. A Kalon shuttle makes a run straight at the Orville, and the eyes of the landing party all go white. In the next moment, it appears as though time has frozen for everything except the party. This Tala stands and reveals herself to be another life form named Denal. So Denal's appearance here totally made me think of a character that would be out of Tron. Yeah, I've never seen Tron. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with the aesthetic, though? Yeah, I can see why you would say that. Like, even her head was very, like, Tron helmety and, like, LED lights and all that stuff. Very, like, she came to a computer party rave. <laughs> yeah. She's like, it's like a circuit board. And she's got, like, lights all going off on her costume. She's got, like, an ethereal glow to her, though. I got mad at this point. Really? Just because I was like, how dare you put my sweet Orville crew through all of this? I can see that. It reminded me of another character from Star Trek. Is it a character with a one letter name? I don't know if you're thinking what (laughs) I'm thinking letter wise, but yes. (laughs) I was like, this is the Q of the Orville universe. It did give me those kind of same vibes. Yeah. Q is such a memorable character Mm -hmm. from Next Gen. And he did. I don't think he was in very many episodes. He's just he had that like presence. Five or six. When you think about the run of Next Gen, that's not very many. But his presence was so memorable. She just gave me Q vibes right away. Q also is memorable, too, because he went beyond Next Gen. He was in DS9 and Voyager. 
Q is a menace. And when she revealed herself, I was like, you seem like a menace. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's just feeling betrayed. It's like I felt betrayed as a viewer. There's some similar personality things, too, that I'm sure we'll touch on between her and Q. There's a lot that just in this sequence when she's like, do you want tea? And they're like, no. Why would we drink tea from you? Exactly. The trust isn't there. Denal restores their reality to normal and reveals that they never left the surface of the planet. She also reveals that they know her ancestors, the race of people who lived on a planet in a multiphasic orbit that came to worship Kelly. Their race has progressed for roughly 50,000 years since then, in which time they've taken the reins of evolution and have become immortal. They were placed in a series of micro-universes that were created from their own minds and cultural databanks so that they would each experience a moment in which they thought they were going to die. The goal of Denal's people was to experience that feeling with them as being immortal has lessened their motivation to further advance. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I don't know if I should save it for the takeaway. That is totally up to you. I'm going to save it for the takeaway just because this specific scene was a lot. It was. And I just have a lot of questions for Denal and her people. (laughs) Do you think it was kind of like a payback to Kelly? No. I think they're so far removed from that that I'm surprised they even remember it. It was weird because in this moment, she says to Kelly, like she reminds Kelly about, remember that time you were like a god? And what did she say? Denal said like, it's old news or something. It was irrelevant. Yeah. It was interesting to bring it up though. Yeah. Well, Kelly's right in front of her and that's the way that they would know her people. So I get that, but I'm also like 50,000 years. Our species doesn't remember stuff from like hundreds of years ago. They seem like a very intelligent race of people, but also not. (laughs) Like at this point, if you're immortal, you're literally a god. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of alluded to in different ways. Like it seems like, oh, we lost the thrill. We got to get our like Ed put it existential rocks off. Yeah. And all they have is idle play left. It just feels a lot like taking people in the universe and making them their playthings for a little bit because they're bored because they're alive forever. Yeah. I might just be simple minded, but the speech where she's like talking about outgrowing self felt like a lot of words that didn't mean much of anything. I have something about that in my takeaway. Okay. We'll save that for then. Yeah. So I, I do not disagree with you. Okay. The other part is that Denal is what I like to call casually condescending to them. Oof. Gold star for you, Captain. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably why she felt like there was nothing wrong with putting them through all the stuff that she did. But, ooh. It's like the epitome of read the room, Denal. Yeah. It's one of those things where is she just so advanced? That she's out of touch. She's out of touch because it's like, we have Tron bodies and (laughs) live forever. Like, this is just banal things because they don't have to deal with that fear of death. Doesn't make a lot of this right, though. No, no, it does not. This is something that was an accident on my part. We were very lucky to see this earlier Mm -hmm. than most people. I had thought it was called morality paradox Mm -hmm. for the whole time. And then as we watched this last night, I was like, mortality paradox. I think subconsciously, I was like, the morality of this situation is really screwed up. And that's what you were considering throughout the whole episode. Okay. That's what I was focusing on the whole time. But it also fits with mortality paradox. I feel like just in general, there was clearly an underlying subconscious thing that made me remember this episode as a morality issue. 
And there are morality issues for sure. There sure are. I just do feel like that was an odd thing my brain did. Yes, the words are very similar, but for whatever reason, I do think it's because of the ending of this episode that it switched that in my brain. Mm. In the mess hall, the landing party have gathered for a drink. They discuss mortality and the inability of human beings to visualize their own death. Fortis weighs in, saying that death is a rite of passage, but Ed disagrees. He'd be happy to be immortal, simply because he wants to see what happens. I don't have a lot to say about this, because most of my thoughts are in my takeaway, which, you know, happens during the end of an episode. (laughs) Yeah, I would say for this, not that this scene was meant to be a bummer, but just that I don't really like confronting the question of death a lot. Nor do I. I feel like it's a, and I write about, I mean, I, I keep bringing up my takeaway. I will talk more about it then. But the fact that Ed says like he would be immortal, which begs the question that I want to ask you is, would you want to be immortal? Yep. I would as well. I was like, yeah, I'm right on. Yeah. Right on, Ed. I want to be immortal. I just think that there is a stress. I think Kelly brings it up as like the stress of every day. Mm-hmm. Or where did, I don't remember how I arrived at this thought or if one of the characters actually said it, but just like you don't have that. Oh, wait, no, Denal said this. I think Denal says it. Yeah. When you release that, it eases everything else. I think there's pros and cons to being immortal. Removing those things such as inevitably I'm going to die mm-hmm. makes stuff probably less special because you can just do it all the time whenever. Maybe. So the meaning probably of life gets a little bit lost. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of having more time. Yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. And there's another show I'm thinking of, but I don't want to spoil it in case other people haven't (laughs) seen it. Yeah. But there's a show called The Good Place. I won't go into any more detail than that, but it has a discussion about what happens after you die. Okay. So I think that it kind of parallels with this a little bit. And I like some of the way that that show ended is all I'll say. Okay. I just... I will say one of my favorite parts of the season so far was an editing bit on this scene specifically for continuity, which I know I bring up a lot. But Kelly brings her glass of wine or whatever she's drinking to her mouth. Then they cut to the outside of the ship where they pan back and Kelly's got it at her mouth and she pulls it down. And I was like, yes. Oh, wow. So it's the full motion. I just feel like that kind of moment is so satisfying to me. And I appreciate that. So I think the editors deserve some love because... It makes my heart happy to see a full, complete movement and have it not take me out of the moment, especially when they're talking about something like death. And what does it mean when you die and how we have no concept really of it? And it's stressful as like a human being, because we're all kind of having to deal with this idea of like we're going to die someday. And it's like a big void of black nothingness. Or is there something after the fact? And just we don't have any concrete information. Mm-hmm. So this whole discussion at the end was very enlightening. And it, it brought up a lot of things that I'd never really thought about. I didn't necessarily love the conversation at the end just because I don't like asking the question. I am one of those people who feels so much daily anxiety from it that I'm like, hey, I just want to forget and just try to live my life without that anxiety. I think sometimes I get really anxious when those things come up in shows. And like it did for me in this moment, I noticed last night. I'm like, oh, I'm getting a little tightness in my chest and like that kind of thing, because it is a scary thing to think about. But in some ways, I feel oddly comforted that someone else is discussing it, even though it's like a character on a TV show, that someone else, like a writer, Mm -hmm. like uh, Jerry had this idea and put it on paper. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, it's not I'm not the only one who thinks about these things. So I think I take some solace and like, ah, 
all right, it's a discussion and it's something that we all have to deal with. And maybe I'm not so alone with it because people don't talk about it. Like, hey, how are you feeling about that death thing <laughs> today? I generally avoid that conversation too, but they had to deal with it in this episode. I always avoid that conversation. And it's one of the reasons I dreaded doing this episode. <laughs> oh no, here I am just being like, all right, let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Listen, it's just a, it's a fake TV show, Rob. And yeah, I know we're going to live forever. So it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, that's, that's we're going right. to upload to the cloud someday. Sure. It's fine. <laughs> We've all seen Black Mirror. It's happening. <laughs> OK, then what is your big takeaway from this episode? Wow. I mean, I feel like that's a loaded question. Yeah. This show had so much in it that it brought up the topic of dealing with death and then also everything that Denal did. Mm -hmm. So I guess the first thing that I felt was a takeaway is that it made you think about the deeper meaning of what life means, mm -hmm. especially with that end conversation. Like we're all afraid of something. And even though maybe everything in their scenarios, such as like Kelly being pulled underwater or Gordon encountering an ogre, we all have something that we're afraid of. Mm -hmm. And Denal allegedly pulled it out of their brains and made these scenarios custom tailored to them. Possibly. Didn't she say that? The universes were created based on their minds, but we don't know if they were tied specifically to their fears. I guess I just made that assumption that it's tied to something that they're afraid of, even if it's tangentially okay. something that they're afraid of. And it brings up that conversation of like, we're all afraid of something. What is the thing that you're most afraid of that would make you have that whole my eyes glossed over, turned white mm -hmm. moment? And I think a lot of us have a fear of death, which is what is delved into at the core of this episode. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we all inevitably have to face someday. And I didn't love that coming up just because it does make you think about, oh, the end of days, mm -hmm. the end of my days. And yeah, that is something I, too, struggle with just because. You want to leave some sort of impact with what you do in your life. And lately, just thinking about how time is passing, how my granny told me, she's like, once you turn 21, time is going to fly. Mm. And I'm like, okay, granny. And she was 100% correct. Yeah. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, what happened to the last seven years? Yeah. And my hope is that I left some sort of good impact on this earth when I do go. But I'm also a medical coder. So I'm reminded daily. Mm. Of like how precious the time is we have on Earth and how short and quickly it can change. So I'm constantly coding people who get cancer. Yeah. And it's really hard for me sometimes because I'm reading other people's lives and someone who comes in, they don't feel very good. And then by the end of the visit, they're going to pass away in a few days. Mm. So it's just, I think, in a way, a good daily reminder for me to not take things for granted. But man, it's like when you face death, you're like, oh, I could die of old age or it could be an accident or it could be illness. It's just easier to ignore it because you don't want to think about it. I think it's a survival tactic. Yeah. For me, it is. I have to ignore it or else it would make me insane. I'm very anxious kind of person. So my brain loves to take these things and just let's run with it. Let's just keep <laughs> thinking about this. You woke up at 3 a.m. I hope you're ready to think about this for hours on end. And it's a coping mechanism for sure to be like, I can't think about mm -hmm. that. 
my therapist was like, one of the things you can do is that you can harness that and then make sure you do those things on your bucket list. Make sure it motivates you to do the things, the experiences you want to have while you have it. And so when I changed my perspective, I think it made the conversation a little easier for me to confront Mm -hmm. because it's not an easy conversation to have with yourself. Right. And a lot of times we're having it with ourselves. I don't feel like people are like rolling up to brunch, like, hey, how you doing with your existential crises today? Like, yeah. it's just not a thing that we do as a society. And I have this whole theory. If we all talked about this stuff more, I think it makes stuff a lot easier. Maybe. Maybe not for everybody, but I do feel like it takes that stigma away of we're not alone with it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I was thinking if this experience had changed anything for the crew at all, mm-hmm. like they had a moment where they thought they were going to die. So essentially a near-death experience. So even if finding out if it was fake after the fact, you can't undo the chemicals that are released in the brain or how that thought process manifests. Yeah. So will they now live their lives differently because they thought those were their last moments? It's a good question. Will this have impacts on upcoming episodes and the way characters change and develop? I was just thinking about how you can't go through something like that. And even though after the fact, you're like, oh, it's a fake thing. I was never in any real danger. Your brain doesn't work that way. That's the same thing as going into uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator Environmental Simulator Edition. (laughs) That's what I was also thinking. I was like, I got to talk about this later. Is that you're in an airplane, an environmental simulator, and you crash that plane. Yeah. You still go through the process of crashing that plane. So clearly there might be some PTSD for these folks. And I don't know how in the future they... I would like a discussion or conversation about mental health in the future, just because that's also a topic that I just need like side (laughs) supplemental episodes where I'm like, give me the lore. I just want to sit here and learn about this world and how I would literally take a class if I could, where it's like psychology in the Orville universe. I would do that in a heartbeat. You want mini decompression episodes after the actual episode. Well, that's what this is. (laughs) That is true. And it, it just... I do want to see if this manifests for them differently in the future because Mm -hmm. they are now a little mentally messed up. I would be. Not only did they go through their own individual scenarios, but they went through everybody else's too. There's also a difference between experiencing it yourself and then seeing someone you care about almost die. So it's like, hey, now, maybe we should have a group therapy session where we talk about our feelings for a couple months. (laughs) Last but not least, I like the concept of the episode. I didn't like Denal. I didn't like the way she spoke. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was an intentional, but it was a mix of dated colloquialisms and jargon. Hmm. She reminded me of a modern day Q, but in a fancy LED package. And I mean, I think the actress did a a wonderful job. Yeah, She came across as very smug. Mm -hmm. And like you had mentioned earlier, she said a lot, but not a lot was said. Yeah, that too. And the whole like, you get a gold star or point for Gordon. It was very condescending. And I'm like, you just put these people through hell. And you're like, hey, I just did this for some knowledge. So you guys forgive me, right? And not necessarily for their knowledge and benefit, but for her own. And the whole thing of like, for a species so advanced as hers technically is, Mm -hmm. should they not have an understanding of what torture is? Because that is essentially what they did to the four of them. She seems so jovial about all of it that it made me feel like she's so disconnected from what just occurred. I think that's true. So for me, I felt very much like the whole morality thing that stuck with me is it was a mortality paradox for her to understand what it's like to feel like dying might be. This episode is more of a morality issue to me because flip it on its head. Danelle needs to go to a morality class and learn a little bit about how you treat people. Ed did say, we learned that you don't experiment on other beings. Yeah. 
long before 50,000 years, it brought up a lot of questions about what her society deems as okay and that you can't just play around with people and their emotions and their brains and just like, hey, here's some tea. There was a disconnect and I didn't enjoy, and maybe this was intentional, the condescending dialogue and the casualness of it all. Mm -hmm. Like just the way she spoke, I was like, it felt confusing. But I also don't know if that was intentional. Yeah, I don't know. So overall, I feel like this episode brought up a lot of hard questions that it's one of those things, right? I thought about this episode a lot after the fact and just made me confront some deep, dark questions that I never really want to look into. But I think that those reminders are good sometimes because then you can go, oh, this is a good reminder to live life to its fullest Mm -hmm. and make the most out of everything. And like those little things really don't matter. And so I do appreciate when shows kind of bring up that dialogue. It's like a check. It's like a mental check, I guess, of some kind. But I I wanted to like Denal. Her costume was cool. (laughs) She was glowy and stuff. I just, I felt like it wrapped up really quickly. A lot got dropped on us. And then I thought a lot about this after. It was like it brought up an emotion of like, I'm kind of mad at Denal. She did some messed up stuff. Yeah, she did some messed up stuff. So I don't know if she'll come back, but I don't know that it would be a welcome comeback for me just because I feel like she hurt my feelings because she hurt people in the show that I care about. But that's my takeaway. What's yours, Rob? So unsurprisingly, probably, I don't have a lot about the death conversation and that in my takeaway because in a way it felt very detached from the rest of the episode. Like that last scene? Yeah. I appreciate the explanation for the mystery, but I, I'm not sure it synced up with everything in a way that was satisfying to me. The only thing I really did appreciate about it is the connection to prior continuity. The fact that this was an advancement of the race that we were introduced to before that had worshipped Kelly in the past. I like seeing that nod back to the old story that we're familiar with. The thing that I enjoyed the most about this episode was the mystery that was within it. What's causing all this? Why is it happening? Why are these scenarios significant? I love episodes that have that kind of mystery box that's presented to us. And we're on the journey with the characters to learn what's happening and what's causing it all. However, in this episode, I like the journey more than the destination. I agree with you on that. The rest of the episode was intriguing and gripping. Yeah. So the end tried tying it up in a package that made sense, but I still had way too many lingering questions that weren't really... My questions are not about the theme, just about the rationale behind certain choices that they made leading up to the end portion. So these are largely rhetorical because I'm not sure if they can be answered or if there was an answer that was in the minds of the writers that they didn't share with us or that we're supposed to pull out of the episode that I missed, which is certainly possible. But I was thinking about things like, why were the first two scenarios based in our time instead of theirs? I know that Denal said they pulled from their cultural context and cultural database. But like, if you want them to experience something they think is real and think is leading to their death, why are you throwing them into a scenario where they're already questioning the scenario and why they're there? Why not keep it as real for them as possible? I almost wonder if it's because maybe it was intentional that Denal is out of touch. Maybe. That would make sense to me. It's just that she doesn't fully grasp, even though they've been observing them for a long time. That was something we didn't talk about is that they've been watching this crew for a hot minute. So 
Yeah, there is a lot of stuff where you're like, wait, why was that the choice? I mean, it's, again, for an audience perspective, I can relate to that airplane and to the high school or like that kind of scenario. So For the audience, yeah. But for the characters, I'm not sure what significance that has. Why were Ed's eyes the only ones to go white before the plane crash, even though they were all in danger? But the other situations only targeted one person. But then why go through the Kalon scenario? After everyone had already gotten to the point of thinking they were going to die, other than for the multi-layered simulation sci-fi reasons. Like, the only reason they did that was to throw us off track and to do the, hey, here's one more layer. This is the cool sci-fi thing that you do when you're getting out of a simulation, you realize you're still stuck in a simulation. Yes, that's a cool sci-fi thing, but there's usually a bigger rationale for it than let's just do it to do it. Because... It didn't need to be triggered again. They already got triggered already, all of them. Well, I guess one thing that I should say is like, you can tell how much effort and love they put into this show because there's like a lot of, I mean, you think about all the sets they had to do for this oh, yeah. and just the shooting and like from a storytelling perspective too, I do think the bridge simulation is more for us maybe than for the story. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, I'm just going to throw it out there. Is Denal a little bit of a psychopath? Just because like, <laughs> yeah, she got her like four hits. Yeah. Is that last scenario just see how far she can push it? Maybe. Like part of me goes, there's some off about Denal. She just really wanted, there was a thing Ed said about getting existential rocks off. There might be some truth to that. Mm-hmm. Maybe she enjoyed doing this a little too much. And some of the scenarios were way more elaborate than they needed to be. Why go through the whole, you owe Randall money, all that misleading information just to have them get to a point where like, oh, you might die here by a giant ogre. That stuff just doesn't line up for me. It feels like a lot of pieces of the puzzle were dropped to make the puzzle more complex. And that's why I think the end wasn't... It was (laughs) to compare it to something like Lost... I felt Mm -hmm. like they added in a lot of elements that didn't become a part of the ending and the explanation. So it made those elements feel less important and not a significant part of the story that added up. I watch a lot of like thriller mystery type shows, Mm -hmm. ones that are normally based on best-selling books and then like they put (laughs) Nicole Kidman in them. But it does feel like sometimes it's a lot of like those misdirects that they put in Mm -hmm. to make it more exciting. I have a theory now oh. that, well, Q is kind of a menace. Mm-hmm. I think Denal might be a little bit of a menace. And maybe it's just like a cat playing with its food. It's possible. I have a feeling we're going to see Denal at some point. It is possible those questions will get answered as we learn more about her. Yeah. If we do learn more about her, it's just at this point in the story, I don't think I have enough. I try to look at every episode, especially the way the show is structured, where you can watch a lot of things on their own. Mm -hmm. I try to look at this piece and I say, is this piece satisfying without further context? The episode is technically a mystery. I wonder if it was left on that to continue that mystery. It's possible. Like she said stuff and like you got the gist of what she was saying Mm -hmm. like at the end, but it wasn't a full answer. It was like one of those non-answer answers. Yeah. Just giving someone enough to make them shut up kind of thing. And that's kind of how I felt it. She felt like she's talking down to them. I think there might be more to her. And now that I'm thinking about it more, I feel like maybe some of it was intentional. Just the confusing nature of a lot of it. It's certainly possible, yeah. Yeah. I don't presume to guess the writer's intent for sure. I can only come from a perspective of how I interpreted it. Yeah. Lastly, I got very Firestorm vibes from this episode. That is true. I didn't even make that connection. 
So in Firestorm, all their fears that surfaced were tied to the characters in a significant way. So when that started to kind of happen again, I was like, well, they can't just repeat what they did before. You can't go back to the well on your own show and do the same concept over. And that's not what they did. But using what seemed like random scenarios instead of things that were more meaningful to the characters, I feel like kind of deprived us of further character exploration. Like in Firestorm, we learned, oh, this person's afraid of this. This person's afraid of this. And that's something we're learning about all those characters. I'm not totally convinced that every scenario is tied to a specific fear of each of these characters. Because I don't know which one of them is afraid of being in high school and chased by a giant ogre. (laughs) So like... All of us? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And nobody had like a major specific reaction to it. In Firestorm, the people that encountered their fears... We knew whose fear was whose based on their reactions and the way they acted to that fear and who it went after in a way. But in this one, it wasn't that. So I don't think they were trying to repeat Firestorm and pulling the fears from the individual people. But I didn't necessarily want them to repeat that. But I think there was some missing element connecting the scenarios. It didn't have to be tied to fear. But I think there was some sort of element missing connecting the scenarios to the characters that really could have helped push those characters forward and what we knew about them by revealing something about their past or anything along those lines to give us more character development. Yeah, you can like maybe pull out metaphorical meanings, but even then it's still not, it's trying to find something like a needle in a haystack kind of deal. Yeah, it would have been a way to like facilitate more backstory about the characters for sure, which now just talking about it makes me think is this is the now centric episode. It's like about her Mm -hmm. and she's a menace. And I think that what threw me off is at the end when she said, I pulled it from your minds and made your own custom made universes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting there like, so my brain's like, oh, so it's basing it on some of their fears. Possibly. Yeah. But like you said, the airplane is such a far throwback. Why wouldn't it be like a space shuttle crashing or something like that? Right. And also, why are we on Zalea at all? Because we only went through four scenarios and there's five characters. Mm -hmm. So why not have, instead of Zalea, one tied to the other people in the landing party instead of Tatala? If you're trying to really scare someone, though, and not have them be prepared for anything that's coming, Mm -hmm. it makes sense to be like, I'm going to throw some weird stuff their way and we'll see. You're more apt to probably be afraid of that and... The confusion adds to it, I would assume. And then, you know, add a near-death experience and they're getting what they want. I guess ultimately what I want is I want to know why the writers made the specific choices of the scenarios they did. Yeah, my brain does the head canning of like Denal's a little bit mm, <laughs> a little off. And so Denal's just kind of doing like the cat playing with its food before it eats. And the more crazy, wild things you throw into a scenario, it's going to throw that person off more. And and then the entire last scenario is completely realistic and acceptable. So it's like the opposite of all that. It's so strange. That's what I'm saying, though. It just makes me think that she is not... All that she says she is, she's a little bit more sinister than I think friendly. Possibly. Because when Ed says at the end, oh, we just ran into an old friend. I was sitting there like, that's not like, no, she's not a friend. I'm pretty sure she's not a friend. (laughs) I think it was somewhat sarcastic, but. I think it was too, but I was like, and I get it. Like after what they have been through, he's like, I don't really want to explain this Mm -hmm. right now. So I get it. Yeah. So ultimately, I liked 90% of this episode. It was a thrilling episode. Yeah. 
It's the last 10% that I had issues with. Again, the journey, totally fine with the destination. Not so much. Maybe it's just the mystery carrying through. Maybe we'll get answers someday. Maybe. Before we get out of here, we have one more thing to do because Katie's husband, Mark, is also a big fan of the Orville and always leaves us with his one sentence review. If you thought Ed, Kelly, Gordon, and Bordis were actually going to die, you must be living in Denal. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at KatiePetersPlays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in, in the, the future. future.